Greetings. This is Roger Kimball, the editor and publisher of the new Criterion. It's my pleasure to introduce you to the February 2022 issue. A little late, I'm afraid, but better late than never. As is usual, this issue is a veritable trove of literary gems, including the sixth installment in our series, Western Civilization at the Crossroads. This essay, by the distinguished English historian Andrew Roberts, is an ingenious counterfactual speculation that begins with the question, what if the West had not triumphed? What if things had gone the other way, for example, at the Battle of Salamis in 480? What if they had gone the other way at the Battle of Actium in 31 BC? How different the world would be. Also in this issue is a terrific essay by Gary Saul Morrison on the Russian anarchist Peter Kropotkin. A very strange fellow was he. You won't want to miss that piece. Now, as is usual with the new criterion, this issue is chock full of interesting and beguiling essays and reviews and reflections. But I have a particular fondness for an essay by Jonathan Gaisman, the British QC, Queen's Counsel, and classicist Jonathan Gaisman. Longtime readers will recall that Mr. Gaisman wrote a piece for us mm, two or three years ago about Horace's Ode No. 9 to Pyrrha. It was a tour de force of an essay. And in the course of that essay, he mentions a book by Ronald Storrs, Sir Ronald Storrs, a compilation of translations of that ode by Horace. It turns out that To Pyrrha has been translated into more languages more often than any other of Horace's odes. And Ronald Storrs collected many of these and wrote a absolutely brilliant introduction to his collection of these translations. Well, looking into Ronald's stores, I discovered that he had also written an autobiography. It was published under the title Orientations in Britain. There is an American edition available called something like the Autobiography of Sir Ronald Stores. I really recommend this. I read it last summer and was absolutely riveted. Stores was himself a classicist. He knew Arabic fluently. He was, uh, according to Lawrence of Arabia, the most clever person in Britain in the colonial service. He was Oriental Secretary in Cairo under Kitchener, and later he was Governor of Jerusalem and of Cyprus before his final posting as Governor of Northern Rhodesia. He was really quite an extraordinary man, and we're very pleased to have Jonathan Gaisman's essay about this remarkable figure. You really won't want to miss it. You'd never find anything like this in any other magazine but the new Criterion. Now for our notes and comments this month. There's only one. It's called Firing the Cannon. What do you make of this bulletin from the fall 2021 issue of the Bard College Stevenson Library newsletter? Quote, In keeping with campus-wide initiatives 
to ensure that Bard is a place of inclusion, equity, and diversity, the Stevenson Library is conducting a diversity audit of the entire print collection in an effort to begin the process of decanonizing the stacks. Three students who are funded through the Office of Inclusive Excellence have begun the process which we expect will take at least a year to complete. The students will be evaluating each book for representations of race slash ethnicity, gender, religion, and ability. End quote. Decanonizing was a new one for us, but we know what they mean, just as we know what, quote, evaluating each book for representations of race slash ethnicity, gender, religion, and ability signals. It means censorship via the oubliette, what museums called deaccessioning, the subjection of the library collection to the dictates of political correctness. Responding to a query, one librarian assured a curious questioner that the decanonizing imperative was only, quote, an information-gathering project, an attempt to increase our understanding of our collection, not to remove books, end quote. Want to bet? We've been here before. This new communique from Bard is just the latest illustration of the important truth that bad ideas never die. That, indeed, is the mournful lesson we are being taught daily by the partisans of so-called critical race theory, the disciples of diversity, the emissaries of equity, to say nothing of the shock troops of Antifa and Black Lives Matter. There are some local differences, of course, differences of fashion and vocabulary mostly, but to a large extent, the present radicalisms are a reprise of the radicalisms of the 1960s, which in turn were recapitulations of the radicalisms of the French Revolution filtered through the argot of Marxism. Perhaps the biggest difference between our situation now, Cherka 2022, and the long decade of the 1960s, is the extent to which, this time around, corporate leaders and the entrenched bureaucrats that run the institutions of our federal, state, and local government are there on the barricades helping to destroy the very civilization whose survival they had been entrusted to ensure. Back in 1991, in his book The Disuniting of America, the historian Arthur Schlesinger, Jr. wrote that, quote, a cult of ethnicity has arisen both among non-Anglo whites and among non-white minorities to denounce the idea of a melting pot, to challenge the concept of one people, and to protect, promote, and perpetuate separate ethnic and racial communities, end quote. That could have been written about Ibram X. Kendi, this season's favorite race hustler and a conspicuous anti-American beneficiary of the American free market. Kendi, 
whose work will not, we are confident, be decanonized at Bard, is part of a larger movement to insinuate the poison of racialist ideology into the supporting institutions of the United States, its schools and colleges, the workplace, even government bureaucracies and the military. But what Schlesinger said about earlier iterations of the demand for multiculturalism is true of what Kendi and his acolytes are attempting. The debate about the curriculum, Schlesinger pointed out, is, quote, a debate about what it means to be an American. Implicit in the politicizing mandate of multiculturalism is an attack on the idea of a common culture, the idea that, despite our many differences, we hold in common an intellectual, artistic, and moral legacy, descending largely from the Greeks and the Bible, supplemented and modified over the centuries by innumerable contributions from diverse hands and peoples. It is this legacy that has given us our science, our political institutions, and the rich and various monuments of artistic and cultural achievement that define us as a civilization. Pacha, the partisans of radical multiculturalism, the Western civilization, far from being a narrow ideology, is a capacious register of human achievement, embracing everything from the lyrics of Sappho and the philosophy of Aristotle to the works of Dante, Bach, Newton, Locke, Austin, Madison, and Eliot. Indeed, it is this legacy, in so far as we live up to it, that preserves us from chaos and barbarism. And it is precisely this legacy that the multiculturalist wishes to dispense with. Either he claims that the Western tradition is merely one heritage among many, and therefore that it deserves no special allegiance inside the classroom or out of it, or he denies the achievements of the West altogether. The sources of the multicultural animus against the West are various. In its more radical versions, multiculturalism explicitly denies the ideal of the United States as an integrated society in which peoples of different races, creeds, and ethnic backgrounds can live together in a state of social harmony. The multiculturalist replaces the traditional integrationist image of our society with the ethnically and racially divisive image of the United States as a kind of gross salad composed of essentially unassimilable elements. Despite occasional rhetoric to the contrary, the multiculturalist scorns the motto a pluribus unum, out of many heritages, one society, in order to bolster ethnic, racial, or class-oriented fiefdoms. It follows that the multiculturalist will also have little patience with the idea of universal humanity. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke for this idea with his famous declaration that what matters is not the color of our skin, but the content of our character. Black Lives Matter, as its very name suggests, turns King's teaching on its head. That's why the alternative motto, All Lives Matter, was rejected as unacceptable. Corresponding to the attack on the idea of a common culture is a rejection of the idea of a common humanity. 
The multiculturalist, the partisan of critical race theory, the proponent of Black Lives Matter, rejects the idea that our identity as human beings transcends our membership in a particular class, race, or gender. On the contrary, for them, what is important is not what binds us together, but what separates us. And what separates us, be it gender, ethnicity, class, or race, is used as a totem to confer the coveted status of victimhood upon certain approved groups. Again, it's a matter of what the philosopher Yogi Berra called déjà vu all over again. Today, every woke advertisement or television commercial must feature blacks, whites must be portrayed as evil, bumbling, or both, and the curriculum and history itself must be revised to support the new racialist agenda. A few decades back, we had the same teaching in different clothes. Today, we talk about critical race theory or the 1619 Project. Back then, Afrocentrism was all the rage. The basic contention of Afrocentrism is that Western culture is largely a bastardization of African and especially Egyptian culture which in a highly innovative piece of ethnography is said to have been predominantly black. And consequently, black Americans, sometimes referred to as diasporan African people, are enjoined to discard, in the words of Molefi Kete Asante, the author of the Afrocentric idea, quote, the preponderant Eurocentric myths of universalism, objectivity, and classical traditions, end quote, and to reclaim their proper intellectual, cultural, and spiritual legacy by returning to African sources. What might be left of culture after dispensing with universalism, objectivity, and classical traditions, in other words, with rationality, science, and history, is never really discussed, because the truly radical nature of the enterprise is never admitted publicly. As with the 1619 Project, whose fundamental contentions are that America was founded as a slaveocracy and that the Revolutionary War was fought primarily to preserve the institution of slavery, the teachings of Afrocentrism are beyond satire. In its simplest terms, the doctrine of Afrocentrism claims that many of the great achievements of classical civilization were stolen from black Africa. It is the belief of Afrocentrists that Greek philosophy and science and political theory were largely pilfered from African sources. A subsidiary claim is that many famous historical figures, Socrates and Cleopatra, for example, were black. How could the world have labored for centuries in ignorance of such monumental cultural pillage? According to the Afrocentrists, it was no accident. They claim that the black African contribution to world history has been systematically covered up by a white conspiracy to deny the black race its place in the sun, as it were. There is something grimly ironic about this spectacle of our new multiculturalists using ethnocentrism as a stick with which to beat the West. After all, both the idea and the critique of ethnocentrism are quintessentially Western. 
There has never in history been a society more open to other cultures than our own. Nor has any tradition been more committed to self-criticism than the Western tradition. The figure of Socrates endlessly inviting self-scrutiny and rational explanation is a definitive image of the Western spirit. Moreover, Western science is not exclusively Western. It is science, plain and simple. Yes, it is universal science, which, though nurtured and developed in the West, is as true for the inhabitants of the Nile Valley as it is for the denizens of New York. That is why, outside the precincts of humanities departments of Western universities, there is a mad dash to acquire Western science and technology. The potentially good news is that the outlandish and destructive nature of our new racialist cavalcade may now be calling forth a sort of Thermidorian reaction. In the French Revolution, a turning point came when the populace rebelled against Robespierre and his Committee of Public Safety. The revolutionaries had endeavored to bestow their own vision of virtue on French society in one of the most radical societal transformations ever attempted. The inherited names of the months were cashiered and replaced by ones more agreeable to the new paganism. Time itself was recast as the calendar was reset to the year zero. The reign of terror claimed the heads of thousands, and traditional French institutions from church to monarchy were destroyed or recast beyond recognition. But all that came to a grinding halt when the populace woke up and began to fight back against the tyranny and insanity that had descended upon French society. Perhaps we are seeing the beginnings of something similar in American society. A heartening sign was the swift action of Glenn Youngkin, the new governor of Virginia, who upon taking office last month signed several important executive orders, including one banning the teaching of critical race theory. All across the country, school boards attempting to mandate the teachings of CRT or the 1619 Project are being confronted by battalions of angry parents who do not want their children taught that all whites are evil, that America is inextricably racist, that the free market is exploitative, and that blacks must be given preferential treatment in school, the workplace, even in the hospital or medical clinic. Bad ideas never die, but their rebirth is reliably met, eventually, by critics who call attention to the emperor's nakedness and, by so doing, dispel the mesmerizing and malevolent illusion that, just yesterday, had us in its grip. That's the good news. The bad news is that, eventually, can be a very long time indeed. Thanks very much for listening. This is Roger Kimball signing off for the New Criterion.